Isaiah 41. This evening we're going to look at the first 13 verses of this particular chapter and uh, continue on in our study through this wonderful book and prophecy. Let's read the first four verses tonight and then uh, let us uh, pray and we'll get right into our study. Isaiah 41, beginning of verse 1. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you and bless you for the privilege of your word to our hearts this evening. Read, spoken, studied, and rightly divided. That is certainly our prayer and our heart's desire. Awaken us, Lord, to the truths of this passage as they would apply to us this evening, as well as what we can learn of what is yet to come in the days ahead. We pray, Father, that as we look back to this time, we realize how unchanging you are, how great and awesome you are in all your ways, but how unchanging you are. the same yesterday, today and forever. And because of this, Lord, we we want to bow down in humble adoration. We want to thank you, Lord, for the mercies that you extend always toward those who look to you. And even when we weren't looking at one point in time in our life, Lord, we realize now that we can look back and see how your hand was upon us. Your desire to bring us near to your heart. And so, Lord, we we thank you for those compassions that never fail and for your great faithfulness. Anoint and bless us now, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There is a continuation of thought from chapter 40 in establishing the greatness of God. Now, we've we've looked at that pretty clearly last time. But it continues on into this chapter that we're looking at tonight. Especially as it has to do now with the history of man and his dealings with mankind. 
In other words, not only is God great in reference to His creation power, as we saw last time, but He is great in human history. He is great in His dealings with men. He was great in His dealings with men in times past. He is great in His dealings with us today, and He will be great in His dealings with those to come as we look to the day of Jesus Christ. But there is also a need to comprehend the, loves, uh, the, the, the Lord's love and His concern for His people, Israel, in light of His dealings with the world. And I think it is in this particular chapter that we can see how clearly defined the lines are between His people, Israel, and the Gentile worlds in general. I'm thankful that as the church of Jesus Christ today, we are grafted in to His people of His love. Though that does not make us Israel, the church being distinct from Israel, yet the, yet the people who God chose as Israel and the church, we who, whom He has chosen, are indeed separate then from the unbelieving world. So this is something we have to clarify and, and have very clear in our minds. But in light of this study today, how distinct then are God's people from the world? Now, they had plenty to fear, and I'm speaking of Israel. They had plenty of, of things to fear, because already the Lord had let them know that they would eventually be taken captive by the Babylonians an exile to that foreign land of Babylon. Later on, the Jewish remnant facing the long way home from exile would be challenged by the difficulties of their return trip, as well as the tasks of rebuilding their home and their temple. These were also burdens upon their hearts. And there was certainly much to fear if they kept their eyes off of the Lord. There was a whole lot to fear. But there is one great reason not to fear. There was one great reason then for them not to fear. There is one great reason now for us never to fear. And that is the Lord and His promises. The Lord and His promises. The Lord promised that He would be with them and bring them through the trial successfully. It is, it is something that we could probably go home with now, but I'm not telling you to get up and leave now when I say this. <laughs> so I'll throw something at you. <laughs> but uh, the very fact is that, that we could go home on this particular note. That is, that Jesus said He would be with us always, even to the end of the age. That the triune God Himself would never leave us nor forsake us. Is that not enough for us to realize that we have nothing in this life to fear? Nothing in this life to be anxious over. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus talks about that anxiety that some people have. Anxious about clothing, anxious about food, anxious about shelter and all. And Jesus himself said, he said what are you anxious over? That anxiety is, is not going to make you grow any, any taller. If the Lord clothed thee 
fields and, and, the, and the grass of the field with such beauty, how much more those that he's created in his image. And especially those that he has made and, and, and have come to him and, and trust him. So what do we have to fear? Yet, <laughs> we look around at the world, we look at all of the troubles and the trials that, that the world seems to keep throwing at us and presenting us with uh, on a daily basis. Uh, we, could, we could say we'd have a lot to fear. Terrorism is on the rise, of course, that's, that's a given. Certainly the nations of the world are doing everything they can to, to have their foothold in some kind of nuclear project or nuclear uh, armament as well. And, and, and we would say, well, that's pretty dangerous. There's a lot of buttons out there that some crazy people could probably push. But there's a God who knows it all. There's a God who controls all things that have happened. Why? As we learn tonight... The God that we serve is a God who knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. Three times within this chapter and seven times between chapters 41 and 44, because this is a, a, a very large section that we're going to be dealing with here in the next few weeks. But within this chapter three times and seven times between chapters 41 and 44, the Lord said to his people, fear not. Every time you run into that phrase, you want to mark that in your Bible. Fear not. When he says, fear not, for I am with you. Take to heart that that's God speaking not only to His people Israel, He's speaking that to us today as well. This is His message to us as well as to Israel. For it is His desire to calm our fears with the assurance that He is ever going before us and working on our behalf. He is always going before us he will always go before us. And He will always go on our behalf. This is a wonderful thing that we, need to, that we need to latch on to about God and latch on to about His love for us. Because you see in 2 Chronicles 16, verse 9, the Lord speaks to the very heart of King Azza, who did some foolish things. But I want you to see what God says to him. He says, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. Of course, the last part deals with the problems that he had. And this you've done foolishly. And therefore, from now on, you'll have wars. But you see, it, it is the first statement that you want to focus on. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. Doesn't that make you want to, 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 to check your own heart to say, Lord, I want to be loyal. I, I want to be true to You that You would be strong on my behalf. And so with that in mind, in a passage that extends now from chapter 41 through chapter 44, we're given some very wonderful truths from the Lord. We are told about the vessels that God chooses to use to accomplish His will and to know who God is by His greatness. Now it's going to be interesting who God chooses to use to accomplish His will, as we'll see in just a moment. But He directs all of this to the peoples of all the world. 
When he says in verse 1, Keep silence before me, O coastlands. In some translations it says islands or isles and all. But it says, Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. This is a very interesting verse and really a very interesting chapter. Uh, at times, sometimes very difficult to un- understand, comprehend, as far as how we tie this together with what he began for us in chapter 40. But God is calling the nations of the world to come and to listen to his way of thinking. God is calling the nations of the world to come and to listen to his way of thinking. That he not only did then, he is doing that now. And if nations will listen, if they'll just be silent and listen, they'll hear what God has to say. But in that day and in that time, there was a reason for this. Because he's also challenging them to let his people do what he's promised in the previous verse. And what is that? That if they will learn to wait upon him, they will renew their strength. This is one reason why it says, keep silence before me, O coastlands. And again, he's speaking to all the nations of the world. In other words, near and far. The coastlands in their mind were other areas, other places far away, but he's, he's really speaking of all the, the nations, and in, and in particular Gentile nations of the world. And again, challenging them, he says, let the people renew their strength. He challenges them to let his people do what he's promised in that previous verse, last verse, verse 31 of chapter 40. If they learn to wait upon him, they will renew their strength. If they learn to wait upon him... Let me read it from Isaiah 40:31. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. We read that last, last week, and I hope it was an encouragement then. I want it to be a greater encouragement today. A greater encouragement for you to take this particular verse and to say, Lord, that is what I need to do. And if you remember, we had that, prog- that progression, as it were, uh, kind of the order of, of how we are to live that life. Uh, mounting up with wings as eagles, up already, you know, sitting in, in high places in Christ. Running and not being weary. And then walking and not fainting. But God is calling all nations, even the distant lands, and that's another translation of that particular word, coastlands. Even the distance land, or distant lands, to keep silence before Him. And for what reason? Many times when we are dealing with, with the preparation for judgment, God says, be silent. If you remember in the book of Revelation, that there is a, is, is a particular verse of Scripture that says that it was silent for a half an hour in heaven. And what comes after that is a lot of judgment. It says it was silence for about half an hour in heaven. What's the reason for him, them to keep silence before God? You see, because they are coming to God's courtroom. What, is, what happens when you go to the courtroom down, downtown? You know, you go to the, the courthouse, or you go to any major court there. Usually the first thing you're told, of course, is, you know, when the judge comes in, everyone stands, everybody rises. But uh, there, there's this just... Uh, uh, unwritten law, in a, in a sense, is, is nobody says anything. So once that judge walks in and sits down, he, resi- he, he presides, I should say. 
presides and he's, he takes control. And nobody says anything until he says so. So they come into God's courtroom here. And if they are going to come before the Lord, they had better be prepared as well to make a a defense of their position. And and this, again, is something we see in the text as we move on here in just a moment. But they have to be prepared to make a defense of their position. He's speaking to the world again. And there's reason again why he wants them to make a defense. Hence they are as well encouraged to renew their strength, for they will certainly need it. If they're going to be presenting their case, they better have some renewed strength as well before God. But those who are angry with God, and I think about today, those who are angry with God and would like to voice their complaints before Him, they need to know why they're to keep silence. They need to know why they're to keep silence before God. And again, I I mentioned those who are angry, those those who who are upset with God, or those who want to just file complaints to God about everything in life or everything that goes on. Listen to the words in the book of Job, Job 29, verses 8 through 10. It says, The young men saw me and hid. Now this is Job speaking. He says, The young men saw me and hid. And the aged arose and stood. There was a respect of age. There was a respect of elders. There was a respect of, of people in, in, in that age bracket, as it were, that didn't have to demand the respect. They were given the respect. The princes refrained from talking, it says, and put their hand on their mouth. The voice of nobles was hushed, and their tongue stuck to the root of their mouth. (laughs) It was the respect of the elder. And if this respect was shown to a human being of high stature, how much more toward the God of all creation when entering into his courtroom? It could be a shameful silence. And many times it has been that with certain people going before God. A shameful silence because of sin. It could be an attentive silence to hear what God has to say to a heart. And it could be a submissive silence as well. In some cases all three apply. Shameful Attentive, submissive. A shameful, attentive, submissive silence. Because God is going to speak. And what is the case? What is the case before God today in this passage? You see, the case is this. Who is the true God? Who is the true God? He himself or the gods that they worship? He who created the heavens and the earth, is he God? Or the gods that all the Gentiles, unbelieving Gentiles, is it their gods that they worship? Are they the true gods? So consider, if you will, what he says in verse 2 of Isaiah 41. He says, who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? Who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings? Who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow? Who pursued them and 
passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet? Who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last, I am he. You see, God speaking to all the Gentile nations here present, and and what he says to them is so forceful and convincing that, that there is no response from their side. So, who raised up one from the east? An interesting question. Who in righteousness called him to his feet, who gave the nations before him, who made him rule over the kings? You see, to give evidence of his greatness, he refers to the actions of a conqueror. Who raised up one from the east? Who in righteousness called him to his feet? He is evidently describing one who will be raised up as a special vessel of God. Now, many commentators believe that this person that God is referring to is the person of Cyrus, king of Persia, who has yet to be introduced, by the way, but it's, it's, it's soon coming, whom God will call to kneel in obedience at his feet, whom God will use to do his righteous work on earth by defeating the Babylonians and sending the Jewish people back to their homeland and allow them to rebuild the temple. This is pretty much what Cyrus is all about. This is what he's called and, and raised up to do, even though he was a pagan king. The interesting thing is that Isaiah would call Cyrus by name over a century before he was born. Remember that Isaiah was writing about 700 B.C. and Cyrus wouldn't even be born until 599 B.C. He would become the king of Persia and in 559 B.C. uh, he would conquer Babylon or or he would become king of Persia in 559 B.C. and, and would conquer Babylon in 538 B.C. And then the Lord is saying, well, so who's, who raised up one from the east? And of course, Cyrus was from the east. Later on, it's going to be designated that he was also from the north. Uh, just put it all together, he came from the northeast. But I'll talk about that later. If you remember, they come from the east and then they swoop down in, in, in that kind of direction. So they're still north and they're still east. But again, I'll talk about that when, when the time comes. But if you look over a couple of pages to uh, forward in Isaiah 44, and you look at verse 28, here's the mention of Cyrus. It says, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall perform all my pleasure, saying to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundations shall be laid. God has already given us this tremendous sneak peek at the very fact that this Cyrus is going to come onto the scene onto the global scene, as it were, and be God's vessel. He is my shepherd. He shall perform all my pleasure. Saying to Jerusalem, you'll be built. And to the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Look at verse 45, verse 1. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 45, verse 1. Next page. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have held, to subdue nations before him and to loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double door so that the gates will not be shut. Now let me also mention something else to you about Cyrus and and about uh, the identity of this person that that we first of all said is Cyrus. There are other commentators who believe that, uh, that the Lord is speaking here about Abraham as well. And, and to some degree, when you look at the passage, you would think, well, that's true. You know, Abraham came from the east. He was Chaldean. came from the east. It was called in righteousness to God's feet. Uh, he was given the, 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 
actually to the nations before him, made, made him rule over kings. And, and, you know, you look at the life of, of Abraham, and that might possibly just fit. Uh, he could uh, war with the best of them. And he went places where his feet had never been, which is what it says about Cyrus as well. But in thinking about this, you, you might be able to look at this in, in, in perspective. I don't mean diplomatically here, but in, in one sense, Abraham uh, touches on the past, whereas Cyrus is touching upon the future. And when you think about that, it just, it just brings to mind the very eternal nature of God. As I said before, who sees the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, as we shall see in verse 4. Because in verse 4 of our text, what does it say? It says, who has performed and done it, call the generations from the beginning. I, the Lord, am the first, and with the last I am He. The beginning, the end, the first, the last. The Alpha, the Omega, as later on we'll see, is the designation given to Jesus, tying Him as deity. Because who else can be the first and the last? Who else can be from the beginning and from the end? So how eternal then is God who sees the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end? And how is, it, how is He not able to lift up and to put down kings and nations with whomever He chooses to use, whether it be Abraham or whether it be Cyrus? God is both the first God is also the last. He is both the beginning and the end. And if He is both, then all authority of His uh, is His of everything in between. If He's the first and He's the last, if He's the beginning and if He's the end, then all authority is His for everything that's in between the beginning and the end. So it is no big deal for the Lord to tell us the future and the future events that are to come. To some extent, of course, anybody could tell us what the, what's in the past. As a matter of fact, by that time, there was much written about the past of Abraham. But now he's saying, look into the future. I'll even give you a name, Cyrus. And some hundred plus years later, someone is born in that eastern region, and they named him Cyrus. God, how, how can God do that? You know, all the critics say, well, you know, evidently, uh, whoever was writing the book of Isaiah must have written it at the time of Cyrus so that he could say, well, you know, well, no, well, you're just calling God a liar. Yet the accuracy of every prophecy that Isaiah gave to the coming of Jesus Christ came to pass. Every prophecy given. So if God wants to call out somebody from a hundred plus years later and name him Cyrus and he does it, God can do that. Because you see, the, he's, he is the first and he's the last. He's the beginning and the end and everything in between. He has authority over. So it's no big deal. He lives outside of our time, our time continuum. Let me say that right. He lives outside of our time continuum. We live in a time continuum. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. That, that's kind of how we measure everything. And that's a good thing because tomorrow I have a dental appointment and I need to be there at 8 o'clock in the morning. And If I didn't know how to kind of do that, uh, uh, then, you know... I would just say, well, 
It could come any moment. Or it may never come at all. Because I don't live in your time continuum. I don't need to be there at 8 o'clock. Whenever. Now, I'm just saying that because I don't want to go. But, you know, <laughs> but that's the way it goes, you know. That's our time continuum. We, 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 we are bound to that. God, on the other hand, isn't bound to that. He isn't bound to our seconds. Besides, He created it. He isn't bound to our minutes. He isn't bound to our hours. He's not bound to our days. You see, we see time from such a limited perspective. Like those who watch a parade from a single vantage point. We've all been to parades. We kind of set up our camp, you know, right there because we've got the best view of this parade. But we can only see one thing at a time. We see it past one event at a time. The same thing today. We see one event happen at a time. But God sees it better than those who, who would watch a parade from the Goodyear blimp. If you had a chance to watch a parade from the Goodyear blimp, you could see the whole parade from beginning to end. If it's high enough, and if it's a short parade. But you could see the beginning from the end, and you could look at the beginning for a little while, and then you can look back at the end, and oh, look, it's coming. But oh, look at over here. Look how far they've gotten here. And you, but God sees it even better than that. He sees it all, and He sees it all at once. And he's not confused. Because God is a God of eternity. That time continuum will become ours when we move on from this life. And so, with that in mind, we go into verse 5 of our text, and it says, The coastland saw it. The coastland saw it and feared. The ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and came. In other words, they began to, 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 to kind of gather together, you know, because they began to fear what was, what was on the horizon. It says, everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage, be strong, you know, let's get together here. By the way, you know, there's a little picture here of what's been taking place over the years between unbelieving people and God. How many more people are gathering together in opposition to God today? How many more people are, 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 are brave enough or courageous enough nowadays just to say, well, I don't believe in God anymore, and we, you know, this, this whole thing about, about religion and this whole thing about Christianity, this whole thing about Jesus, it's just a bunch of bunk, and you know, who needs to believe that? And more and more people are rising in that direction. It's a sad thing to note that our country hasn't helped all, uh, uh, that whole issue at all. Uh, a country that was actually founded on, on, on the Judeo-Christian uh, belief, on the Judeo-Christian ethic. A, a country founded on the Bible, by the way. But by the time, uh, you know, we, we've got to 1962 in, in, in that time continuum. In 1962, uh, prayer was taken out of the public schools. You know what the problems were in, in, in 1962 at that time? The problems in schools... Kids talking too much, chewing gum. Those are the major problems. Oh, there was other little, you know, problems here and there, but, but, the, but those were the, you know, the most problems that they had, you know. Kids talking too much in class. Sometimes, sometimes it was, might be the way they dressed, but it was chewing gum. After 1962, and gave it a little bit of momentum here. But what have become the problems in our schools today? Murder. 
rate? High pregnancy rate? You know, drugs? All because we took prayer out of the school. It gained momentum pretty quick after the 70s. After the late 60s, early 70s. You see now the picture here. Everybody, oh, let's help our neighbors. Be of good courage. So, so what happens? So verse 7, so the craftsman encourages the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammers inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. And then he fashioned it with pegs that it might not totter. You know what he's talking about? It's talking about gathering together and starting to make more of their idols. And making a god or an idol that would not totter, that would not fall over. We've got to fasten it. We've got to hold it together somehow. Because we need to have a God against what's happening and against what's coming. God is saying, be silent and know that I'm God. But judgment's coming. And they fear. And rather than turn to God, what do they do? They turn to their idols again. You see the picture? God's argument is reinforced by a portrayal of the impression made on the nations by the military actions of Cyrus. They felt threatened and the fear created by it caused them to stand by each other for encouragement. But it was more than just that. Their encounter with a holy and a righteous God brought them low with fear, which is a logical response. Think of Peter's reaction to the great power of Jesus. It's a logical response to be brought low in fear, with fear. Jesus went out and preached over by the sea one day. Had to get in a boat and all of that preach then after he had preached it said in in Luke 5 verse 4 when he had stopped speaking he said to Simon launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch but Simon answered and said to him master we've toiled all night caught nothing but nevertheless at your word I will let down the net now Peter was being nice Peter was thinking this he says you know Lord I'm not saying it but thinking you'd have to believe this Peter's been hearing Jesus, Jesus preach from the boat all afternoon long. And then he says, hey, Peter, go in and, and, and uh, launch out. Go, go out into the deep and, and, and drop your nets for a catch. And he says, Jesus, I've been listening all day. You preach. You're a great preacher. Stay preaching. I'm the fisherman. You understand the picture here? I'm the fisherman. You're in my territory, but because you're the Lord. <laughs> but because you're Jesus. Okay. We'll go do that. (laughs) And so, what happened? Verse 6, And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, that their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they, they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw it, notice what he did. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. You would, you would think that Peter would say, Jesus, man, would you like to be a fisherman? And stay on my boat and take us out where you know the fish are? Because we did pretty good today. No. He realized he was in the presence of holiness. And this is a problem today. When we forget that we are in the presence of holiness when two or more are gathered in His name. We're in the presence of holiness when we're by ourselves. We're in the presence of a holy God 
But our response is to is to admit, I'm, I'm a sinful man, oh God. So with that in mind, and thankful that Peter stayed. A lot of lessons to learn in Peter's life. But we know the results. But how interesting that his fear would eventually, you know, his fear drove him to Jesus, drove him toward Jesus, because in our text here in Isaiah, the fear that comes upon the nations drives them away from the true and living God and causes them to make for themselves more idols of gold. Maybe that idol will stand against Cyrus. That's why they got the pegs. Oh, the soldering. Make sure it's soldered pretty good because we've got to have this idol stand against Cyrus. The one that God says is coming. Paul was aware of this same attitude. The Apostle Paul was aware of this attitude when he penned the book of Romans. And he says in Romans chapter 1, verse 21, because, they all, all, because although they knew God, they did not glorify Him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. And therefore God also gave them up. God gave them up to uncleanness, it says in the lust of their hearts, to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie. Notice that it says, for the lie. You know what lie that is? Read Genesis chapter 3. That lie. You shall be gods. Why God told you not to eat from that tree? You go ahead and eat it, because the day they eat it, you're going to be like God. Exchange the truth of God for the lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. We have to ask ourselves the question, are we, still, are, are we still worshiping the creature or are we worshiping the Creator who is blessed? Ask yourself, am I worshiping the creature rather than the Creator? That's where the nations were. But at this point, the Lord encourages His people Israel that He will be with them. And here's the great news. Verse verse 8 of Isaiah 41. But you, Israel, are my servant. See, He's taken now His his attention from, from the coastlands, from the distant lands. He places it upon Israel. He says, but you, Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant, I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Understand, Jesus, God Almighty, not so much Jesus in particular, the God of Israel, 
says, you Israel, are my servant, Jacob, whom I have chosen. Interesting statement. He says, you governed by God are my servant. Sneaky, rotten thief whom I have chosen. That's what he just said. You see, Jacob's name was changed to Israel, governed by God. But how often did Israel become Jacob, sneaky, rotten thief? And yet he chooses Jacob over Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Not because he hated him with a passion, but so much that uh, you know, the understanding here is that, that, that he loved Jacob. He chose Jacob. Jacob had some problems. <laughs> His character. And this would continue on in the life of, of the people of Israel. But isn't it, isn't it wonderful, though, how God chooses and yet realizes, you know, that he's still the God of Abraham, Isaac, and it doesn't say Israel. Most of the time we see that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Why? Because he wants to remind us where we came from. But he's chosen us and he still loves us. He still cares for us. Still wants us to be Israel in that sense. No longer Jacob, but another important issue here is that he calls him servant twice. You, Israel, are my servant. And then later on he would say, you're my servant. I've chosen you. I've not cast you away. What a, what a tremendous encouragement. So these, these are words of encouragement here and promises of salvation in the midst of alarm, in the midst of confusion. What was taking place? Remember what, it is, what had Israel heard from God? Well, Babylon's coming. They've already had to face the Assyrian threat, and now Babylon is coming. But this time he says, Babylon's going to take you. So the Lord now uses tender and endearing words. He uses tenderness. He uses endearment in, in, in speaking and uh, expressing his close relationship with Israel. And, and this serves as grounds for the following exhortation, not to be afraid. So he first calls Israel, my servant. Because it describes the intimate relationship between the Lord and his people in Old Testament fashion. In other words, it was Israel's calling to serve the Lord. It was Israel's calling to serve the Lord, but it was also a high privilege for them to be uh, as a personal attendant who could always be found near his master. It was a privilege to be near the master in service. Jacob is mentioned to heighten that, that the, the privilege that distinguishes them from all the nations, the fact that they are only the servant of God because He chose them. You see, that's a humbling thing. We are servants of God because He chose us. So it reminds us that we didn't choose ourselves, we didn't choose Him first, He chose us first. We didn't love Him first. He loved us in the condition where we were. 
and brought us to that place where He would give us a new heart and a new mind and new eyes, new ears, so that we could see Him clearly and serve Him dearly and lovingly. And then he says, Abraham is my friend. And he mentions Abraham as friend. And that's mentioned to show that his descendants, I'm sorry, his descendants had a special place before God also. A special place before God. Turn to Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 7, because Jehoshaphat re- recognized this about Abraham and called him friend. He says, Are you not our God who drove out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and gave it to the descendants of Abraham, your friend forever? So Jehoshaphat recognized Abraham as a friend of God. Very special, special place. A very special, special position. Later on, James, uh, the, uh, the, the writer of the letter of James, would, would write in, in chapter 2, verse 23, and he says, The scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, quoting from Genesis. And he was called the friend of God. So he recognized that Abraham was the friend of God, a very special person, a very special position in place. And we are friends of God as well, not because of Abraham so much, but because of our relationship to Jesus, the Son of God. We are his friends as well. And we are told by Jesus himself in John chapter 15, verse 14, he says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. There was nothing that he kept from his disciples that they they needed to hear. He, He let them know everything. I have come. I am the Messiah. I have come to die. I have come to take and give my life and to take your sins, to die for those sins. I've come to shed my blood for the forgiveness of your sins. If you believe me and you, and you obey, you are my friends. And so a very special, special place before God. And verse 9 of our text reminds us that Israel is, is special not because of their achievement, but because of God's initiative. Not because of achievement, but because of God's initiative. It says, You whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. I have not cast you away. Isn't it wonderful to hear those words from God? I have not cast you away. Oh, but I've committed great sin. I'll forgive you. and We've got to deal with it, but I've not cast you away. I've not cast you away. You have a special place. How much more special those of us who have become children of God through Jesus Christ. How much more special. You know, this isn't the time for us to go, oh yeah, we're pretty special. You know. Shine up that apple. Yeah, we're pretty special. That's not us. God is special. He's so special to give us that precious opportunity to be His own children. To be welcomed into his kingdom. He who saved us uh, when, when we were still in sin. Saved us. Brought us into his kingdom. Not because of what we've done. As Paul said to Titus, not by works of righteousness which, I've done, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. 
We ought to be thankful for the mercy of God. I mean, what... What do we thank God for? We have to get our minds off of the things that, you know, the, 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 oh, I want to thank you for such wonderful things you're giving me. Lord, I will oh, look at, you know. What if all of that went away? Would you still thank Him? What if we no longer had our cars and our homes and our, and, 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 but we had a, place, a, a nice place to live? We had a, you know, we got around a nice little bicycle or something or, you know, moped? Whatever it is that we have, what, is that more important than the mercy of God who saved us? I'm amazed at the, the way people think today in our country about, you know, what's important to them about God. Is it what we have that, that we can see and touch and feel? Or is it what we have that we have res- reserved for us in heaven? Again, in Ephesians, it tells us that we sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Do we really? Do we really? If our mind is only on the things of this world, then boy, we are men most miserable. The mercy of God. Let's look at verse 10 and finish here. For tonight, anyway. Fear not, for I am with you. What an encouraging statement. Fear not, for I am with you. Would would that not be enough for us tonight? God says to us, fear not, for I am with you. Ah, thank you, Lord. Let's go home. (laughs) Maybe we better listen to a little bit more. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all those who are incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. When God says these things, believe it. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. Aren't these I wills better than those I wills of Isaiah 14? Where Satan himself is saying that he is going to ascend unto the Most High. That he is going to be like God. All he can do is try to be like God, but one thing for sure, there is a God, and he says, I'll strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you. These are better I will than Lucifer's. The first thing to notice here, by the way, is that, that the Lord has issued to Israel both a command and a promise. When he says fear not, that's a command. Don't fear. That's not a suggestion. It's a command. But it's also a promise. Don't fear. I will be with you. 
You see, they were commanded not to fear because fear, anxiety, and worry are oftentimes seen as sin. I mean, whether, uh, whatever is not of faith, isn't that what it says in, uh, in, in Romans 14, verse 23? But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he does not eat from faith, for whatever is not from faith is sin. So that's one reason here. But people today need to take to heart this very same command. But, but also see it as a promise as the Lord says, I am with you. I mean, do we need more than this? Romans chapter 8, if you're still in Romans 8, verse 31, it says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But let me say that the, more, the important thing is we better be with God. If God be for us, but are we with God? If God be for us, who can be against us? We need to be with God. What an amazing passage of Scripture we're given then in Isaiah. Uh, is, is our God small? Is our God small? Is He powerless? Is He without any glory whatsoever? God says to His people, don't be dismayed. I am your God. He's not small. He has already reminded them countless times that He is all-powerful. He is all-glorious and that there is none like Him. His greatness exceeds and transcends all of His creation. We ought not to forget how great He is. And then we are to introduce, or then we are introduced, I should say, to those I wills of God toward His people. There's a lot more next week, too. Isaiah 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you, but be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. There's the first one. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. While God's ability to help His people is based on His strength and on His glory, His willingness to help them and to help us is based on His love. Folks, understand this if you understand anything tonight. God's, while God's ability to help His people is based on His strength and His glory, and that's a lot, His willingness, His willingness to help them and us is based on His love. Jeremiah 31 verse 1 says, At the same time, says the Lord, I will be the God of all the families of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus saith the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. Israel went, Israel, uh, went I to give them rest. I'm sorry. The people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness, Israel, when I went to give him rest. The Lord has appeared of old to me, saying, Yes, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness, I have drawn you. His ability to, to help us based on His strength, His willingness based on His love. When Jesus was asked to heal someone, we know you're able, Lord. Are you willing? He said, yes, I'm willing. That's his love. You see, idols, as we learned before, idols have to be held up by pegs. have to be soldered together. It is God who, who holds us up with his righteous right hand. We don't have to hold God up. God holds us up. We don't have to make idols that we have to hold up. Our God holds us all up with his righteous right hand. Psalm 17, 5 says, Uphold my steps in your paths, that my footsteps may not slip. That's our prayer. Uphold us, Lord. 
And he does, because in Psalm 37, 17 it says, For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, but the Lord upholds the righteous. Psalm 37, 24, Though he fall, he shall not be utterly cast down, for the Lord upholds him with his hand. Psalm 63, verse 8 says, My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. It is God who holds us up. Psalm 145, verse 14, The Lord upholds all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. Aren't you thankful for that? And with His right hand, He holds us up even if we fall. Even if we fall, He, he picks us up. So much He loves us. You know, sometimes I think that if we were God, if somebody falls, we'd just say, we'd just dump on them. My good, you dirty little sinner. You know? That's the way we think sometimes. That's not God. God loves us. He sees us fall, He picks us up. The Lord is going to deal with our enemies if we keep our trust in Him, and it matters not whether our enemies are demons or men. To Israel, the promise in verse 11 was a product of the promise that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 when He says in verses 2 and 3, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And there is a similar blessing toward us. We have enemies too. Both seen and unseen. And God cares enough about us that He's given us everything we need for life and godliness through Jesus Christ. He's given us everything we need as protection through the armor of God. He's given us everything we need through the very Word of God as the sword of the Spirit because He loves us. But if we fall, He will pick us up. And our enemies will not receive the same blessing. The victory that the Lord would give the people of Israel would be so thorough that Israel would not be able to find their enemies. Did you see that in verses 12 and 13? You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will hold your right hand. You see, where he had a, we were upheld by his right hand. Now he, he holds our hand, our right hand. And he says to us, fear not, I will help you. It is an especially significant thing that the Lord takes Israel by the right hand to encourage and to lead them. The repeated phrase, fear not, expresses the urgency and the love with which the Lord impresses upon His people Israel that they should lay aside all fear. And the Lord loves to hold the hands of His people. The Lord just loves to hold the hands of His people. You do it with your children. And if your children have grown up, you've done it with your children. When they were small, they didn't know where they were headed. That's why you took them by the hand. Oh, children, they'll get excited. They're going someplace. And you just look at them and say, where are you going? <laughs> Come here. And you take them by the hand. And they go, oh, you know. They go with you. You let go of them for a minute. 
They're going all over because they're going somewhere. They don't know where. They, you take them by the hand and you and you and you lead them there. And so you know uh, they just they just wanted you know you take them in the car someplace. They just wanted to jump out of the car to get to the theater, or maybe get to the zoo, or or get to Peter Piper, right? They just get out of there and go, you know. Come here. You know, you care for them. You love them. You protect them. Come here. And you hold them by the hand. You have to grab their hand, you see. But think about it. Even though they were frustrating you a little bit, they were safe there, weren't they? Were they not safe in your hand? How much more when God takes us by His hand? How much more? Psalm 41, let me close with this. Verses 11 through 13. By this I know that you are well pleased with me because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and, and set, before your, uh, set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. And amen. You uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Isn't that the best place to be? Oh, listen, we get excited. There's a lot of Christians excited like our children. Going wild, wanting to go here and there. Wanting to see this or that. Wanting to do this or that. But sometimes God just has to take us and say, come this way. Uphold me in my integrity. And set me before your face. There's no greater place for us as Christians to be than before the face of Almighty God who loves us with an everlasting love. In the face of our Lord Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he died for us and shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins and rose again from the dead so that one day we can be told by those blessed words of the Lord, enter in my good and faithful servant. Let's pray.